Right now, the Major League Baseball playoffs are underway, and there's been some very exciting games. I'm sure you've been watching them as I have. But as I've been watching them, I can't help but be thinking about Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn was one of the greatest hitters in the history of baseball. But four months ago in June, Tony died. Tony was only 54 years old. He succumbed to cancer. But Tony was such an amazing person. He played his entire career with the San Diego Padres. 20 years. 20 years with the same team. That doesn't happen anymore in professional sports. But he was so loyal and he so wanted to play all of his games as a Padre. It turned out that he was phenomenal in his hitting. He won eight batting titles. He would end his career with a batting average of 338, which is just amazing. He would wind up being an all-star 15 times. He'd be elected to the Hall of Fame on the first ballot of eligibility with a 97.5% vote. No, the guy was truly incredible. But it's fascinating how he became a good hitter. It really happened his second season in the major leagues, 1983, because of an injury. You see, he had hurt his wrist. And he was in a terrible slump. He had gone seven for 51. Seven hits out of 51 times at bat. And he was struggling and did not know what to do. And so they were on the road and their game was going to be televised. And he called his wife and said, I want you to record the game on the VCR. Now, if you go back and you can remember 1983, you will remember that there were not hardly VCRs. It was kind of a brand new sort of thing. And they said, get this recorded for me. So she did. He came home, and then he watched his at-bats. And when he watched his at-bats, he realized to, because of his wrist, he was opening up his stance, and it was causing him to swing over the ball, either as a miss or to top it, and he knew what he needed to correct. He was so impressed by what he was able to suddenly learn, he went out on his own and bought all kinds of video equipment, And then he started paying someone to videotape every one of his at-bats. And when he went on the road, he took his own TV and own VCR with him. They weren't in hotels in those days, VCRs. He took them with him. He could hook it up, and then he would watch every at-bat. And he started to build a library. Well, three weeks after he started doing this, Suddenly, he went on a hitting streak, getting hits in 39 out of the next 41 games. At least one hit or more every single game. Everybody started taking notice. What are you doing? Today, everybody studies film for sports. But not in Tony Gwynn's day. He was really a pioneer in figuring this out. And so he built the library a couple years later. The Padres were playing a game, and it got to the ninth inning. They were behind. And in the ninth inning, Tony came up, and he immediately got down in the count. No balls, two strikes. I mean, it's almost a sure out. And the next pitch, he gets a hit, drives it out into the outfield. The run scores. They win the game. They start interviewing him after the game and said, Man, that's amazing. You you hit that pitch. How are you ready for all this? And he said, Well... I'd been watching, and I saw that the last 12 times that I faced this pitcher, and he got me down in an 0-2 count, this is what he threw. So I was ready. They're going, what? Yeah, 
He had his library of every at bat against a pitcher. And if I'm down in an 0-2 count, here's what they tend to throw. I was ready. This guy was so passionate, so disciplined, that he was truly able to be the best that he could possibly be. He would play for 20 seasons. He would have a hitting streak of a batting average of over 319 out of those 20 years, all the last 19 years in a row. He truly was such an amazing guy. Hall of Fame, 97.5% of all the votes. He was that good. But as well as being just a great baseball player, Tony Gwynn was a great human being. You see, he loved to laugh. He loved to laugh. You always knew where he was, by the belly laugh. Was he in the clubhouse? Was he in the dugout, out on the field, in the parking lot, signing autographs? You could hear him laugh, loved to laugh. And when the game was over and the players had showered and were heading out to get in their cars and run home, well, not Tony. Tony would always take the time to sign the autographs for all the kids who were hanging around. Didn't matter how many or how long, he stood to sign the autographs. He loved the kids. And maybe he loved the kids because Tony was such a man of faith. He and his wife went to church. They raised their kids in the church. And Tony was known to say, I feel like God has blessed me with ability. He's given me great eyesight, great hands. And I've worked hard to use those gifts. You know, when I think about Tony Gwynn, I think about Jesus saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, if you don't put the word meek and Tony Gwynn together, maybe you have the wrong definition of meekness. When you and I think of the word meek, we tend to think of weakness, being timid, being reserved, being shy. But that's not really the translation of the word meek, and especially in Jesus' day. When Jesus uses the word meek, what he means is someone who is submissive to the will of God. Someone who is disciplined to look for the will of God. Someone who is kind in living the will of God. This morning, I want to continue on this sermon series, Difference Makers. We have said that everybody, all of us, we all want to think our lives make a difference. That what you do matters day in and day out. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, or you're a doctor or lawyer or preacher or whatever you do, everybody wants to think that we make a difference, that what we do day in and day out matters. And what we're reading about each week is Jesus training His disciples so that they could be difference makers, going out day in and day out and making a difference. And we said we're going to read each week how Jesus went up on the mountain and there He sat down and His disciples came to Him and He opened His mouth and He taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We said last week, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means someone who is not arrogant, boastful, rude. 
but someone who knows you are you, a child of God. Someone who is humble, gracious. If you are poor in spirit, I think Jesus would say, you're ready for number two. Blessed are the meek. Those who who truly are submitting themselves to God's will, who are disciplined to living God's will, who are kind to truly live out God's will in the world. To be meek. Jesus was trying to prepare the disciples because he was sending them out in a difficult world. When you look at the Romans, the Romans had inherited the world. They'd inherited Jesus' world through power, through might, through the sword. He was sending them out and he knew how they'd encounter the religious authorities of his day. They would get angry at them. They would persecute them. Jesus tells his disciples in the Beatitudes, you're going to be persecuted. People are going to say all kinds of things falsely about you in my name. You're going to be talked about, treated poorly. People will be angry with you. The question is, how are you going to react? Will you react with anger? Will you react with insults? Will you react with the sword? Blessed are the meek. The kingdom of Rome, it would fall. The kingdom of Christ has continued to grow for 2,000 years around the world. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. The truth is we all have to struggle knowing that when you go out into the world you can be a difference maker and that there's going to be so many struggles. How do we respond? I want us to think about it this morning. There's just three things that I quickly want to say. First of all, just be sure that if you are committed, if you submit yourself to God's will, and you are striving to be that person God has called you to be, somebody's going to be critical of you. Somebody's going to be jealous of you. Someone will get angry with you. If you do good things and you bless life, you're going to get persecuted. You will have things go bad for you. Jesus warned us. You know, Richard Paul Evans is an amazing author. He is the one who wrote the book, The Christmas Box that talks about the Christmas angel, the angel that is out in our um, garden here at St. Luke's, given because of the children who were killed in the bombing. You remember Richard Paul Evans was uh, married, a couple of kids living in in Utah, Salt Lake, Utah. He's Mormon. But but he had a real passion. He, He wanted to write a book based kind of out of his life and his experiences, and he wanted to do it for his family. That's all his family. And he wrote a story about about a family who loses a child. The child dies, the grief. And then about the importance of God's healing grace, the importance of family, not wasting your time with things that don't matter. Remember what you need to do and who you love. And it was an inspirational book, and he gave it to his family, to his children, had it printed for them and for some of his extended family. Gave it at Christmas, about 10 copies. Two weeks after he'd written the book in 1992 at Christmas, he started getting phone calls from people saying, can I get a copy of the book? Who are you? Well, I got a book from so-and-so. Who's that? Well, they gave it from so-and-so, and 
he started tracing it back and he found that his family had given it to someone and given it to someone. In two weeks' time, 160 people had read his book. And he thought, maybe this is a message bigger than my family. Maybe God wants me to do something with this. And so he decided he was going to try to self-publish. And he started going to all these bookseller conventions and going to bookstores, trying to get his book out there. And sure enough, by next Christmas, it really had caught on and was doing well. Enough that he really kept trying in the next year. And by the next year, 93, a self-published book from a non-published author became number two on the New York Times bestseller list. It so attracted attention that the publishing houses got together and wanted to buy the rights to the book. And so the next year, he was paid $4.2 million as an initial upfront purchase for the book. And that year at Christmas in 95, it went to number one on the hardback and number one on the paperback book at the same time. Just unheard of. The success was phenomenal. More than 7 million copies have now been sold. But he said, you'd think, oh, that's great. But the strangest thing happened. With all the success that was coming our way, we had some neighbors who stopped talking to us. And there were some members of the family who stopped coming by. And, and rumors got started about us in the neighborhood. We were trying to be the same, go about things the same. And yet so much was coming. It was suddenly we were getting so criticized and talked about. He went to his father and he said, what is going on? And his father said, Richard, never forget, your success will help everyone else remember their failures. If you're trying hard to do good and you're blessed in life, whether it's something small in the family or at your work or in the community, don't be surprised if suddenly you get criticized, talked about, catch people's anger. Tony Gwynn went into the Hall of Fame with 97.5% vote. And yet, you know, in his career, he was really criticized at times by a few players, at times by the press. He got to talking to another player, Adam, Adam Robbins. He was playing for the Orioles, and he was getting good. And suddenly, people were really talking about him, criticizing him. And he came to Tony to say, what's going on? And Tony Gwynn said to him, if you don't want people trash-talking about you, then don't be good. Because if you're good, he said, there's always going to be somebody standing by to talk about you. Jesus warned the disciples. After he had been crucified and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, it was Peter and John who were heading up to the temple to pray. And as they headed up to the temple to pray, they got to the edge of the gates, and there was a man who had been born crippled. He had never walked in his life. And they brought him each day to sit in front of the temple to beg for alms. And when Peter and John came up, he was asking for alms, and they stopped and said, We do not have silver or gold, but what we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And they took his hand, and he stood up, and he walked. And he began to leap and to celebrate. I mean, who wouldn't be thrilled to say, wow, this man can walk? What did he get Peter and John? They dragged him up before 
the religious authorities. And the religious authorities said, all right, we know you did a notable work, but we're telling you, don't do it again. They threatened them with their very lives. So how are they supposed to respond? With insults, with anger, the sword? Jesus had tried to tell them, you will be persecuted on my half. People will speak falsely against you on my name. Blessed are going to wind up being the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. How do you respond when the anger and the insults and the criticism comes towards you and you're trying to be the best you can be to bless life? Secondly, to be meek, I think, means to be disciplined in trying to live God's will. So often we say we want to follow God's will for our life, but we don't mean really. I think sometimes it's easy to be lazy, to be disciplined, to truly be disciplined the best that we can be, to say we really want to follow what God's call is from our life. It requires a price to be paid. Are you disciplined? You know, you and I probably don't know many people more disciplined than the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley. When John Wesley went off to school there at Oxford, he decided he wanted to be the best preacher he could be for God. And so he set himself a rigid discipline. He got up each morning at a certain time and he'd spend time in prayer and then he'd spend a certain time in Bible study and then he would have breakfast and he would go to class and there'd be more time for prayer and then there'd be time for class and there'd be time for work and then there'd be time to come back and have more prayer and Bible study. And he mapped out his day so methodical, so regimented, he wanted so desperately to be disciplined and be the best he could be. It's because he was so methodical that all of the students at Oxford laughed at him and they would ultimately say, John Wesley, you have a method for everything. You're nothing but a methodist. It's where we get our name. You know that. But that's who we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be the disciplined, the methodist, the committed to be disciplined, to truly seek to follow God's will in our lives. We're that committed to it. John Wesley was that disciplined because of his mother, Susanna. You want to talk about an amazing lady. It was Susanna who was growing up in the the late 1600s. It turned out that her father had been an Anglican priest. But he felt that the Anglican church was straying. And so he left the Anglican church for the nonconformist group. He became a Puritan with strong Presbyterian leanings, theology... And he began having people come to his home who were of the Puritan background and theologically thinking about this nonconformist group against what the Anglican church was saying. Susanna grew up in a home where she got a theological education that was second to none. And she grew up incredibly disciplined in how you're supposed to live life. She was taught the power of conscience. Always look at what does your soul tell you and are you being true to it? So much so so that when she grew up, she felt she didn't want to be a Puritan. She went back to the Anglican church. And it turned out that she would marry a man, Samuel Wesley, who also had been leaving the Puritan church to come back to the Anglican church to be a priest. And so they were married. 
And they were sent to Epworth there to, to take care of a church. While they were there, they had either 17 or 19 children. Nobody knows for sure. I'm not sure they knew for sure when it's that many children. I mean, they had so many children. And let me tell you, I watched my daughter Kelly with four. If you're going to run a household with 17, you're going to be disciplined, methodical, organized. She got up in the morning and she'd be singing the Psalms. They would have breakfast. She homeschooled the children. From 8 to 12, they would have school. 12 to 1, they'd have lunch. 1 to 3, they'd have school. Every evening she had time to listen to each child talk about their spiritual challenges. She was very methodical and disciplined in helping each child to be the best they could be. Her husband, Samuel, there came a time when he was called to go to London for several months to be a part of a convocation in the church. And so he left a couple of men in charge to run the church on Sunday morning. Susanna was in the habit of having Sunday evening worship for everyone in their household, the children, a few of the people, maids who had worked and helped them. And every Sunday night she would pull them together and they would have their own worship service out of the book of Common Prayer. And she would read Samuel's sermons and then explain what they were supposed to mean. She would teach. Well, it just so happened while Samuel was gone, some other children started coming. And they enjoyed it so much that the parents decided they wanted to come and Suddenly it was growing and more and more parents were coming and their kids. And before Susanna knew it, there were more than 200 coming together on Sunday night in order to study God's Word, to pray and praise. Now, the men who were running the church on Sunday morning were having 20 to 25. Susanna's having 200 plus. Can you guess what they said? They wrote Samuel and said, What is your wife doing? Who does she think she is, this woman? You need to tell her to stop. And so Samuel wrote back to Susanna and said, Stop what you're doing. I want to read you what Susanna had to say to Samuel. (laughs) She wrote back to him and said, If you do, after all, think fit to dissolve this assembly, do not tell me that you desire for me to do it. For that will not satisfy my conscience. But send me your positive command in such a full and express terms as may absolve me from all guilt and punishment for neglecting the opportunity of doing good when you and I shall appear before the great and awful tribunal of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you don't want me to teach? We're not going to be blessing life. So you command me not to because one day you and I are going to answer to God together. And Samuel wrote back to her. All right, it's fine for you to keep on going. (laughs) Let me tell you, Susanna was disciplined, passionate about following God's will, doing good, blessing life the best that she could. I believe that follows naturally if you are submissive to God's will, then you are disciplined to living God's will. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so third, I believe if you submit to God's will and you are disciplined, then you can't help but be gentle and kind. 
and live God's will for your life. If you submit to God's will and you seek to follow God's will, then you're going to live God's will. And God's will, Jesus said the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God and you love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments rest all the law and all the prophets. Most important thing, do you love God and do you love your neighbor? That's God's command for you, God's will for you. That's why you and I, as we talk about right now, being difference makers. We're talking to ourselves about what does this mean for us to be committed to God's will, for us to be seeking to be kind, to bless life. You and I, whatever we do for a living, whether we are young or whether we are retired, we can be difference makers. David Johnson was a fascinating young guy growing up in San Diego back in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Turned out that growing up in San Diego, he was a baseball fan. And because he was a baseball fan, his favorite player was Tony Gwynn. He idolized Tony. He knew all of his stats and how he was doing and what he was doing. And so it was that when he turned 13 years old, he decided to write a letter to the Padres and said, I want to apply to be a bat boy. Now, to get to be a bat boy for a professional baseball team, you usually have to know somebody who knows somebody to get an opportunity. But Well, he wrote, and they wrote back and said, you have to be 16, write us then. Well, he waited to the day he turned 16. And he then wrote in, here's all his resume of the work he's done. He talked about why he wanted to do it. He had sent in letters of reference. He had an application. And the Padres were so impressed, they gave him an interview. And they were so impressed with the interview, he got the job. One of the coveted spots to be a bat boy for the San Diego Padres in the 1991 season. He was elated. What that got you was free parking pass, free tickets to every game, a uniform, a locker there in the dressing room. Half the game, you'd sit on the bench, go getting the bats and the balls. The other half, you'd sit down one of the foul lines and collect the foul balls. David said, I'll never forget the first day I, I went into the locker room. And I had my own locker, and I'm putting on the uniform, and the players started coming by to go out. He said, none of them stopped to talk to us. None of them looked at us until Tony Gwynn came by. And Tony stopped, and he looked right at me. And he said, how you doing? He said, I was so starstruck, I couldn't say anything. I stood there with my mouth open. He just kept looking at me, and finally I said, okay. Tony just started to laugh, his big belly laugh, and said, I just wanted you guys to know we're glad that you're here. And he headed out to the field. He said he was just so different. He said he hadn't been doing this many games when he was out on the right field to shag foul balls when Tony turned around and said, hey, you want to play some catch? Play catch with Tony Gwynn out on his major league field? He said, I was stoked. I was pumped. He threw me the ball, and I threw it back. It went 20 feet over his head. <laughs> it sailed, and he just started laughing, and he ran down, and he picked up the ball and came back, threw it to me. I tried to get under control, threw again. I got better. It was 10 feet over his head. He laughed. He ran and chased it down and came back and said, 
why don't you show me how you're holding that ball? He said he kind of worked with me on changing my grip and at least the next one I was able to get to him and we just started playing catch. And he said, I looked up and there in the stands were all these young kids hanging over the outfield fence and they were watching me play catch with Tony Gwynn. And I could see the look in their eyes. And when finally it was time to start and I ran back over to take my seat on the side, they came around to ask me for my autograph. He said, it was amazing. He was just that way all season long until finally at the end of the year we came to our last homestand. And when we did, one day we came to our lockers and we opened them up and there was a, a Nike catalog with a pen and a note from Tony that said, circle whatever shoes you want. And he said, we all circled the shoes that were our dream shoes. And what we did not know was that Tony would go himself to the store, buy the shoes, bring them back, and put them in our locker. But not just put the shoes in our locker, a note thanking us for what we had done and a check to each of us for $500. He said this was 1991. $500 was a lot of money. But what mattered to me was not the money. I had a check with my name on it signed by Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn had signed my name and was giving me this check. He said it took me five months before I could cash it. He was so kind to me. Tony Gwynn was meek. He was meek. If being meek means someone who submits themselves to God's will, someone who is disciplined, looking for God's will, Someone who is kind and living God's will. It's what each and every one of us can do now. Each of us can be difference makers. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.